we go, mate. G'day, mate. 40 here. Oh, just trying to squeeze in a live stream before the, the boss catches me. But I just uh, signed up to the Patreon level of uh, Decoding the Gurus and listening to a great interview with Helen Lewis of the, the BBC. And I think she may have been with uh, the New Statesman. And they're all agreeing that uh, you should not interview Nazis because what the heck are you going to learn from them? And so I start thinking, as I've interviewed a lot of people who would be considered Nazis, right? why should you never interview Nazis? So I'm on the clock right now, so you'll have to excuse me. I'm hard at work watering. But, like, why objectively should you not interview Nazis? And so one answer is, is that they are just essentially irredeemably evil. But if that's your argument, then you have to objectively believe in God. Right? Belief in good and evil requires a transcendent source of morality above your opinion, above my opinion. Essentially, it requires belief in God, right? You believe in objective good and evil, then you have to believe in God. So I don't think people on the secular liberal left usually anchor their beliefs in God. But that's what you have to do if you're going to just say, oh, well, Nazis are irredeemably evil. So I don't think that's the basis, or they haven't been, they haven't been thinking clearly. So, the other argument I guess they would make is that you don't learn anything. So, this is essentially subscribing to an essentialist view of people, right? That uh, if, if the term Nazi applies at all, then there's no, there's nothing to learn from it. But obviously that, that's bogus. Like, would you never learn anything from a Scientologist or Seventh-day Adventist or, or whatever the, the cult is or the ideology or the race or religion is that you despise or the ethnicity. I mean, that that side of the argument just doesn't hold up. You never learn anything. So they, they mock, you know, why would you hang out with Nick Fuentes or Bake Alaska or Richard Spencer? But all you're going to learn is that, you know, they might like their mothers and they might like ice cream. And so this is, am I misreading this? This is subscribing to an essentialist view of Nazis that if you can just put that tag on someone, then they lose all humanity, they lose all debt. But no, they don't argue that. They say being, being a Nazi is like so heinous, it, it's so evil that anything that you can, you can learn from them is dwarfed by, you know, how bad, it, how bad their politics is. But they won't, you know, they can't philosophically use the word evil because that requires belief in, in a transcendent source of morality, God. So they'll just say, you know, these people are so bad. And then you say, on what basis would you say bad? And then they say pragmatically, like all the people, they've been radicalized and then gone out and done heinous things. So I'm thinking, if you want to talk, you know, modern day, Right, the, the number of people who've been radicalized right, by the far right and gone out and done heinous things, right? they've, they've perhaps killed, what, 100, 200, 300 people, which is awful, which is horrible, 
and I'm all for considerations. Luke used to rock with NPR while performing labor with a landscaping company in LA back in the 1980s. Now he's rocking with podcasts, yeah, decoding the gurus, that's right. So I've got a lot of time to fill while I'm uh, watering away. So it's not exactly like a high cognitively demanding task that I'm, I'm performing right now. So I've got lots of time to, uh, to cogitate, prepare my you know, next big show and listen to podcasts. So I'm mainly listening to The Power Broker, Robert Caro's biography of Robert Moses, the New York City Parks Commissioner and so-called most powerful man in New York City for about 30 years between the 1930s and 1960s. But also listening to The Daily Reprieve, you know, a podcast of sex addiction talks. So once I feel like my head is on straight, then I can move on from The Daily Reprieve. I check out Radix Journal to see what Richard Spencer has to say. I check out Ann Coulter. So I was subscribed to Ann Coulter's Substack and Richard Spencer's Substack. So I check those out. I check uh, Richard's Twitter feed in case he's done a space. And then I go to Decoding the Gurus. But now I've unlocked the membership for Decoding the Gurus. So I am behind the paywall. Lots of exciting stuff. Okay, so why should you not interview Nazis? Other answers, they have nothing interesting to say. And again, I find that terribly reductive. Uh, I, I just don't find that, that that stands up. There are so many levels and nuances. It's just like reducing someone to being black or being Christian or being Muslim or being Jewish and saying, oh, you know, everything you need to know about them is this, they're satisfied by this one categorization. Okay, then the argument is, yeah, they may have interesting things to say, but that is completely outweighed by the pragmatic badness of what they have to say and how it can easily transmit. Luke is an expert on interviewing Nazis. I defer to his judgment on this topic. <laughs> okay, and so if pragmatic, Luke is a Dr. Fauci of interviewing Nazis. <laughs> oh, it's Ricardo. Excellent, Ricardo. See, my, my side isn't the best right now with my sonnies. And, you know, I have to take into consideration the effect that my work might have on other people if I was overheard right now. You know, at work, I need to be a good representative of my family and my workspace. So, you know, lots of uh, considerations, you know, flowing through my head as I do this you know, socially acceptable, you know, pro-social, psychologically and socially healthy uh, live stream while uh, you know, getting in some watering so my brother is getting his, his money's worth. You know, I don't want to be bludging on the job. I don't want to be slacking off here. I want to be doing some high-quality watering. If I don't do this high-quality watering, right, you get shown up really quick because the plants start wilting, and then it makes me look bad. It looks like I, I lack conscientiousness, which I do lack. I do tend to lack conscientiousness. My mind does tend to wander. There, there are some ways that I'm not an ideal employee, such as my propensity to live stream on the job. So I want to fight against that negative stereotype. There's this negative stereotype out there that I'm shiftless, lazy, irresponsible, uh, criminally inclined, you know, prone to contracting and spreading STDs, um, you know, fathering children that I then don't take care of. And I'm trying to fight against this negative stereotype. And so I want this live stream to fight against all these negative stereotypes there are of me out there. Okay, so... If you want to argue that the pragmatic 
Okay, anyone who fears the words of Nazis being allowed to consider it has to admit that they think their own views are brittle. Right, right. Fundamentally, it comes down to if you think ipso facto interviewing Nazis is bad, you're saying that your own views can't compete in the marketplace of ideas. I mean, you are frightened that, that Nazis have something to say that's socially appealing. What's the building behind you? I'm not sure I should say. It's, uh, it's a top secret um, CIA spying base uh, that's used to monitor you know, China and Russia's activities in the Southern Hemisphere. And I'm not allowed to videotape it directly. And so I've got to keep that you know, on, on the down line. But let me just put it this way. If, if China goes to war with Taiwan, the first thing they're going to hit is this bloody, oh man, bloody, is this bloody building behind me because it's a, a whole secret to Western civilization staving off the threat from autocratic, totalitarian, authoritarian powers. So when, when China goes to war with Taiwan, the first thing they're going to hit is this building behind me. And, and then they're going to hit Darwin, they're going to hit Okinawa, uh, probably, God forbid, um, hit like naval bases in, in San Diego. They'll hit aircraft carriers in the Pacific Ocean. Okay, I hope I'm doing a good job here. Okay, so if you want to argue that just, you know, interviewing people on the far right, they're just, you know, pragmatically really bad, they're going to trigger people into doing, you know, horrible antisocial things, then add up the death toll from people getting triggered online, radicalized online, doing horrible things. And you might get 100, 200, 300 people who've been murdered by these you know, heinous, heinous acts of right-wing terrorism. And then compare that to the death toll of Black Lives Matter, which is well over 10,000 murdered, and countless rapes, and then thousands of extra pedestrian deaths and traffic deaths. So on the pragmatic argument, you'd have to say you can't talk to anyone in Black Lives Matter. And then the rejoinder would be, well, 91% of Black Lives Matter protests are mostly peaceful. Well, guess what? 91% or above of far-right protests are mostly peaceful. So, what's the... I, I, I don't want a straw man here. I want a steel man. Right? 40 is the type of bloke who steel mans his, his, his adversary's strongest arguments. So, I guess... The one, one excuse is that they're boring, right? That uh, you shouldn't interview people on the far right because they're boring, they're Johnny One Notes, they're one-dimensional, right? But that's not true, right? They're obviously fascinating. You wouldn't fear them being interviewed if they were so boring. If they were so boring, nobody would pay any attention to them, right? You, you're afraid of the viral nature of what they have to say because you think that if you know, a hundred people listen to it, but, you know, five, ten percent will will be persuaded. So, yeah, essentially saying you can't compete in the free market of ideas. Now, I am very open to pragmatic arguments. So, if you want to present to me you know, a significant case that uh, interviewing people on the far right, you know, radicalizes a sufficient number of people that they go out and commit criminal acts, then, yeah, I'm happy to look at that data and happy to reconsider. All right, I don't want to see people quitting their $120,000 a year jobs, like is it Patrick Little? 
you could try to see if it goes beyond the substrate of their belief. Like what lies, think what lies below their unconsciousness is the greatest fear of the left, and that is ignorance and, and bigotry. And so they think interviewing people on the far right will contribute to a furthering of ignorance and bigotry. So I think that's, is that not the deepest part of this argument? That uh, responsible people such as myself and other podcasters and live streamers and journalists, all right, we have to educate people, dispel ignorance and bigotry and, you know, old-fashioned ways of doing things that have now been superseded by our more, you know, advanced social science, you know, academic learning. Right, so am, am I wrong? The greatest fear on the, on the secular liberal left is the fear of bigotry and ignorance. And so I think the reason they don't want you to interview these people is that it will contribute to increase ignorance and bigotry in the world. And so they see the, the responsible man's primary mission is to reduce ignorance and bigotry in the world. I looked it up. I think it's a shopping mall. Yeah. Well, that's that's just what it says on Google Maps. Because Google has been infiltrated infiltrated by the deep state. I mean, weren't you paying attention to what uh, Julian Assange and Edward Snowden were revealing? That uh, the deep state, the CIA, has infiltrated big tech, and so they label all sorts of military bases. What makes them think their enlightened ways are superior? Wow, that's a, a deep question. But anyway, the, the deep state has infiltrated big tech, and so what big tech frequently labels as a shopping center, in reality, it's a CIA spying station. Okay, what makes them think their ways are superior? Mm-mm-mm. Boy, I should have a better answer for that, but, uh, okay, here's one reason why they think their ways are superior. Our, your hero system and my hero system are crude and obvious. Forty is concerned about ex-girlfriends stalking him, God forbid. I remember when I broke up with one girlfriend, she called Dennis Prager's office and told him, you know, how I had used and abused her. And so the first time I met Dennis Prager in Tampa Bay in, in January 1994, like I said, oh yeah, you know, one of your ex-girlfriends called the office. Like that was one of the first things that Dennis Prager said to me. Like, that was not my dream for the first time I met Dennis Prager, was that he'd start talking to me about something that, uh, you know, an ex-girlfriend had, uh, had called his office. Then she wrote detailed letters to my parents like, talking about, like, everywhere in the house where we'd had sex, like, in my dad's bathtub, I mean, a lot of different places. She set out to do maximum damage to my life. Like, anyone she knew that I cared about, right, she... What the hell's wrong with my picture? She just uh, set out to destroy me with, you know, with regard to every important relationship in my life. So... And this happened to another friend of mine. Uh, he left the country because his ex-girlfriend just started sending faxes to his workplace. She just did absolutely everything to destroy him. I've never known a man to react this way. Like, obviously, men could be stalkers, and men are more likely to be violent than women. But 
I haven't heard about men trying to get their ex-girlfriends fired or sending faxes to their workplace. Oh, I fogged up my lens. That's what happened. Man, it's not easy to produce you know, these high-quality live streams with the high-quality audio, the high-quality picture content, all while using you know, the cheapest phone possible uh, and getting that, you know, that bargain basement you know, Aussie you know, data plan as opposed to my T-Mobile plan. But uh, I, I soldier on. But what, so what are the what are the pragmatic reasons why they think you should never interview? So one is that they they're boring, which is clearly not true. One is that they're evil, and that has to presuppose belief in, in God. Another is that it's pragmatically bad for people, and that's not a one hundred percent foolish statement, right? Because there are people like Patrick Little, right, who who quit their who quit their, their job, you know, supposedly their six-figure job. Bloody hell, these get a little windy here, and the, the plants blow over, and then it really gets in the way of my live streaming. Oh, bloody hell. Okay. A little wind, the plants blow, blow over, and it just totally interferes with my, my train of thought. Okay, so, yeah. You know, some people are university professors, and... You know, they start reading a little bit of the comp and they can't handle it, right? And suddenly they're, they're tweeting, you know, genocidal things and they just totally go off the barrack, off the path. And so, yeah, that's sad. And I think of all that Patrick Little could have uh, contributed as an executive and he ends up, you know, driving for Uber after he reads Kevin McDonald's Culture of Critique. Uh, and uh, Greg Johnson at Countercurrents, he said that reading... Kevin McDonald, culture of critique, that's what convinced him to become a white nationalist. And Richard Spencer talks about how Kevin McDonald's the most important intellectual on the alt-right. So the most important intellectual on the alt-right is being debunked by Jewish DPhil, doctor of philosophy from Oxford, was it not? Uh, Nathan Kaufness. Um, that doesn't say a lot of good things about the, the alt-right's uh, intellectual bona fides. So, yeah, I think, you know, exposing people to dangerous ideas is, is dangerous. I, I'm willing to, to grant that. I see, I see the danger. I think the greater danger is saying, you know, we can't expose you to these ideas because you can't handle it. And you'll go crazy if you, you know, get these ideas. So then, then you're not saying that the current political menu can't compete with what these crazy dissidents have to offer. So you're also saying that people are incredibly disconnected, right? So that they're vulnerable. People are looking for meaning and purpose in life. They're incredibly vulnerable to something that's going to give them meaning and purpose. And, you know, this dangerous, distant right-wing ideology is going to speak to incels and, and people who are feeling disconnected and plug them in. It'll help people feel connected, but it'll connect them to something bad. So, the alt-right died with Spencer's ego. Damn, I can't keep scrolling the, the chat as diligently as I would like. So I'm just so dedicated here to giving good bang to the buck to my employer. But I don't buy 
there's only by theory of information. The other thing that you have to argue if you say you shouldn't interview you know, right-wing dissidents is that if people get exposed to this type of thinking, they become infected. Right? That they, they are essentially, there are certain people who are helpless in front of this kind of far-right ideology. And I don't buy that. Right? People only change their minds in, in radical directions when it's compatible with who they are, when it's meeting needs that they can't approach to life is not meeting. So I notice a lot of people on, on the far right, you know, they, they talk about Christian nationalism and they talk about wanting to make America Christian, but they don't actually participate in a flesh and blood concrete you know, Christian church. When you listen to them and you hear about their life, there's you know, very little in it that, that strikes you as you know, sacrificing for Christ. And so I think a lot of people you know, talk a good game with regard to Christianity or with regard to Judaism, but inside they're empty, and so something comes along giving them meaning and purpose that some other people corresponding be victimized by liberal ideology. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Yeah, so some people, you know, listening to Ibrahim Kenhi or, you know, some other left-wing ideologues, they will join Antifa. Like, what type of people join Antifa? Do you have any good peer-reviewed academic studies on what kind of people join Antifa? And is... Joining Antifa is that as likely to ruin your life and be bad to society as joining some you know, far-right course. So I'm open to the evidence. Like I'm open to the argument. You know, I don't think it bothers me to say, oh, I was wrong. You know, I did some shows that were wrong. And I've certainly changed the direction of my show since, since 2018. I've become much more restrictive on what people can say. I've become much more careful about the type of people I bring onto my show, so it wouldn't, wouldn't bother me to say, oh, I was wrong to interview all these Nazis, if, if the evidence is compelling in, in that direction. But my bias is to believe in the free market of ideas. Good morning, Luke, but why censor distant right information? Why not the left also? Good point. So I guess the elites would argue, because when people go left, they don't you know, start shooting people. And generally speaking, we have to admit that there may be something to that argument. So Antifa does not go around murdering people with very few exceptions. So if you tally up the, the death toll from the quote-unquote far right and compare it with the death toll from Antifa, then Antifa very rarely goes around and murders people. But the pragmatic mainstream liberal world and left-wing world promoted Black Lives Matter which led to a dramatic reduction in policing, which led to you know, a dramatic upsurge in criminal violence, thousands of murders, extra traffic deaths, pedestrian deaths, because police backed off law enforcement. So I still don't see how exposing people to far-right ideas is you know, one twentieth as dangerous as exposing people to mainstream liberal ideas. Uh, disrespect for the police is inculcated when when very respectable publications like the New York Times and NPR and the ABC here in Australia you know, encourage this completely bogus narrative that the cops are racist. So compared to the, the dangers inculcated by respectable, mainstream, even centrist ideas, ones promoted 
by Fortune 500 companies. Dozens of Fortune 500 companies donated to, to Black Lives Matter. So I, I don't see how you can add things up in a way where exposure to mainstream, you know, centrist, liberal, left-wing, you know, leading, dominating ideas in the academy and in mainstream media, how that's not more dangerous than, you know, right-wing ideological ideas. Okay, turn on the pump here. What's the, it's the black one? Oh, how'd you do that? Put on the P for pump. Bloody hell. P for pump? You're amazing. Oh, shoot. Sorry. Oh, so, P for pump. Remember that. Okay. So there are all sorts of dangerous you know, mainstream ideas, like if you tell people uh, that society is rigged against you, right? That's a really dangerous idea. You know, that's probably destroyed thousands of lives. You, know, you tell people society is irredeemably sexist or, or racist or ageist or bigoted or you know, that the powers that be will never let you succeed. Right? That's you know, an incredibly dangerous message. I, th I think that's ruined you know, far more lives than our right ideology. You know, on the other hand, like, well, does that ideology lead to mass shootings? Well, if society sucks, then there are fewer incentives to be pro-social. And so, you know, that probably encourages an anti-social attitude, which, you know, very likely does lead to an increase in crime. So, one of the major themes of the news media is that society is irredeemably racist, sexist, bigoted, homophobic. And so that encourages antisocial attitudes. So encouraging the most dominant mainstream media narratives and academic narratives, that seems to me far more irresponsible than interviewing people on the, on the far right. So. I just don't see that, that argument putting up on a pragmatic basis. So I think what we're talking about here is maybe an emotional reaction to interviewing people on the far right. So it's understandable that people on the left have an emotional reaction against interviewing people, you know, giving a platform to people on the far right. And so they just instinctively feel these people are, are evil. And so they can't justify belief in objective good and evil without referencing an objective transcendent source of morality such as God. So maybe what we're dealing with here is just emotion driven. Also, the zeitgeist, right? The zeitgeist focuses on the danger of right-wing misinformation and the danger of right-wing radicalizing. So Steve Saylor makes the point that which can't be said publicly, you know, such as that different groups have different gifts. Uh, that increasingly can't be thought. And so when it comes time to try to attribute you know, the ills of society to this or that, we can only deal with those possibilities that are allowed on the playing field. Right? The, the elites, right? the gatekeepers, they decide 
the Overton window, they decide, you know, what ideas we can discuss. And so if there's a racial disparity in life results, you can only talk about essentially structural racism, conscious and subconscious racism. And occasionally you can talk about culture, but that's all that's allowed in that discussion. So when when your ability to you know come up with answers for why the world is the way it is 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 severely circumscribed by the Overton window. Remember, Richard Spencer thinks the idea of an Overton window is stupid. He's just sick of hearing about the Overton window. Still think it's a very valuable idea. Then then you have to kind of invent these right-wing boogeymen. Right, because there's so many news media stories about right-wing disinformation, right-wing radicalization, and you know, incel men who've been radicalized online and go on to do horrible things, which I think is true in some instances, but there's no sense of proportion you know, in comparison to you know, other ideologies. Bloody heck. So it's, it's kind of breathtaking how we've moved away from the free marketplace of ideas, right? It used to be that that uh, every intellectual, whether on the right or the left, the far right or the far left, right, the center, like, it used to be that every intellectual subscribed to the free market of ideas, right? They, they overwhelmingly did not believe in the free marketplace for goods and services, but they did believe in the free marketplace of ideas. That was the dominant zeitgeist into, I think, the... the late 1980s. So it was only with the birth and growth of political correctness that intellectuals started shifting away from the free marketplace of ideas. But am I wrong? Did that not used to be taken for granted by people on the left and the right that it was better to have a free marketplace of ideas? That's no longer dominant because uh, ideas are now violence, right? In in uh, the new deconstructionism, perhaps led by various French thinkers such as Michel Foucault, right? Words of violence, ideas of violence. But this isn't applied to communist ideas, right? It's not applied to left-wing ideas, only... Am I missing something? It seems like only right-wing ideas of violence and right-wing words of violence. And so I don't buy this platform that words of violence and ideas are violence because I've been called you know, every awful name in the book and I'd still rather be called every awful name in the book. You can call me an abuser or a rapist, etc. And I'd still rather you call me horrible things than do physical violence to me. So I'd much rather you commit a microaggression against me than, than a macroaggression. So I... I I just can't get into the mindset that ideas are violence and that words are violence. I think that type of thinking only comes from the left and they never, correct me if I'm wrong, they never apply it to left-wing thinking. Right? It's only applied to right-wing thinking. So we've shut down the free market of ideas, right? which used to be the dominant intellectual trend because Apparently, you know, many right-wing ideas and right-wing words are violence. So, kind of a, a bizarre world that we're we're living in. Now, this uh, this new 
Decoding the Gurus podcast with Helen Lewis. Right? It hasn't been publicly released yet, not sure if it ever will, but it's on their Patreon. It's absolutely fascinating. They talk about Stefan Molyneux. Like, how do you account for Stefan Molyneux's trajectory? So, started out as a bloke talking about how you shouldn't spank your kids. Right? And talked about defooing your, your parents. Like, if your, if your family won't treat you with respect, then you should completely separate from them. And then he had free domain radio, or maybe still has, because he's such a libertarian. And he billed himself as the you know, biggest philosophy podcast website discussion on the internet, which uh, seems, seems dubious. Reputational destruction is equivalent to physical destruction. Yeah, sometimes, right? Sometimes I would rather be punched than have my sterling reputation sullied. So yeah, there are certain circumstances where words I would experience as more damaging to me than physical violence. But generally speaking, I'd much rather have words said against me than physical violence. But yeah, sometimes the rape, as Dennis Prager points out, the rape of a name is is as bad or even worse than, than uh, criminal rape. Like, I, I can understand that because you can have you know, your whole life ruined and you know, your family's life ruined and, and your friends and your community's life ruined by a false accusation of rape. So yeah, there are certain circumstances where words can do more harm than physical violence. Generally speaking, it's, uh, it's not true. But anyways, what, what's the through line with someone like Stefan Molyneux? I started out Free Domain Radio, built its number one philosophy discussion on the internet, which is absurd, right? Uh, it's not just because uh, Stefan doesn't have a PhD in philosophy, but I don't think what he, he was primarily doing was you know, philosophy. He was primarily talking about human relationships and freedom and libertarian ideas, and cutting off family if they're not conducive to your personal growth. And I usually think that's a really bad idea. I'm sure, sure there are certain circumstances where cutting off family is appropriate, but generally speaking, you know, I'm a big believer in reducing the intensity, frequency, proximity. Intensity, frequency, proximity, and duration of your interactions rather than cutting people off. Like cutting people off is such a dramatic step that can really hurt you. Well, that's my life experience. When I've cut people off, I've almost always regretted it. So I just find it pragmatically much better to uh, just you know, reduce, turn down the dial on people, you know, reduce the, the length of time of interactions, the intensity of the interactions, the proximity of the interactions are moving from in person to the phone and the, the length of time, frequency, intensity, duration, proximity. Such you know, more effective, more subtle, more sophisticated way of dialing people up and down in your life. Okay, so then Stefan Molyneux kind of signed on with Donald Trump, ethno-nationalism. He got uh, removed from all major social media, of which I'm aware. And what's Stefan been doing the past two years? I haven't heard anyone talking about Stefan Molyneux in the past two years. Like, am I missing something? Like, truly, he's, is he uploading on Odyssey? Is he in a depression? He's still doing free domain radio. But Stefan Molyneux seems to be an example of deep platform. Okay. 
like his his career has been absolutely squelched. His influence has been dramatically reduced. But anyway, they did make a good point in this discussion with you know Matt Brown, uh, Chris Kavanaugh, and Helen Lewis. They made a good point. Like, what's the through line with these secular gurus? And it stung. Right? It really stung because I recognize very painful truth in here that would, that would also apply to me. And that is the through line is how do you feel about Netanyahu suggesting microchipping Israeli children? Uh, I think you're talking about vaccination. And so I am all on board with vaccination. So I don't believe that uh, vaccines are microchipping people. I think that's absolutely absurd. I am a big believer in vaccination, though I am not a believer in making vaccination uh, mandatory. But uh, if uh, Netanyahu wants to make you know, children getting vaccinated mandatory, I don't see this in the worst thing in the world. There are all sorts of vaccines that we make mandatory for children if they want to go to public school. So I'm on board with, with all the mandatory vaccines prior to COVID for kids if they want to go to public school. And so um, I'm not appalled if uh, Bibi Netanyahu or you know, other governments want to make it mandatory for kids to be vaccinated for, for COVID if they want to attend uh, public school or even what about private school. I'm not sure about, about private school, but there's nothing about being vaccinated that installs a microchip in you. I think that's, that's ludicrous. Okay, but getting back to the main topic, here, what unites people like Stefan Molyneux, Richard Spencer, uh, and, uh, Nick Fuentes, you know, Baked Alaska, you know, when they go through all these dramatic ideological uh, contortions. And this was the killer point. And, and the left sometimes makes good points. So I have to, have to hand it to these guys because I recognize this painful truth in my own life. I quite unite these gurus who go on all these ideological deviations and contortions and seeming self-contradictions. It's, it's a desire to be the guru, right? They're the guy, you know, telling people how to live. And so I went through a phase where I wanted to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian minister, Christian missionary. And then I went through a phase where I wanted to be a great general. And then I went through a phase where I wanted to be a great politician. And then I went through a phase where I wanted to be a great journalist. Then I went through a phase where I wanted to be, you know, on TV. Economist who was always going on TV, and I went through a phase where I wanted to be, you know, a world champion marathon runner. Um, then I went through a phase where I wanted to spread ethical monotheism to the world and speak to the world about the beauties of Judaism. And then I went through a phase where I wanted to become the expert on the pornography industry. And then I went through a phase where I wanted to be the, the, the expert, you know, the Matt Drudge of Jewish life. I went through a phase where I wanted to be the, the Matt Drudge of Hollywood. And then I wanted to talk to the world about the Alexander Technique. And then I wanted to talk to the world about right-wing dissident politics. 
and <laughs> what's the through line for all this? It's like me talking. That's the through line. So it was Stefan Molyneux, Richard Spencer, Nick Fuentes, Luke Ford. Oh shoot, I'm not supposed to water those plants. I got so carried away by my live streaming. Hope my brother doesn't find out. Okay, um, so the through line for all these uh, gurus is I guess I want to be a guru. And I have to face that. And you know, no matter what ideology I'm subscribing to, I guess there's a substantial part of me that just wants to be upfront talking. I just want to be yakking. I just want to be entertaining and informing and transforming. Right? I want to be front and center. And so probably what what drives this is probably you know an inner emptiness in my life and many of these other people. So I don't have kids. That someone made the astute observation that Ford hasn't propagated his seed, so he wants to propagate his ideas instead. And you know, why is you know, gurus overwhelmingly male? Right? Because men can't give birth. We, we have a hero system. We want to play a transcendent role in something that outlives us. And so it, I think it's this inner emptiness, this fear of insignificance. It's this uh, desire to perform, a yearning for adoration. All right? And yeah, some emptiness with reality so that we want to subscribe to a romantic view of life. So a romantic view of life is someone like Donald Trump is going to save us from the deep state. You don't have to pathologize wanting to teach. Yeah, that's a good point. So all these drives that I'm talking about, they're healthy and unhealthy ways to meet them. Right? There's nothing inherently pathological about feeling an emptiness inside. Right? You know, that drives you to achieve something. Uh, there's nothing inherently pathological about wanting to teach, about wanting to influence, about wanting to inform, wanting to entertain, uh, wanting to connect, wanting to share observations on life, wanting to bounce your observations on life off of other people. So there are pathological and healthy ways of doing all these things. So there is nothing wrong with wanting admiration. Right? It's kind of embarrassing to admit it, but yeah, I want admiration. And that's not inherently bad. What's inherently bad is when you do socially destructive, personally destructive, so anti-social, criminal, embarrassing, you know, these things to get that attention. There's nothing wrong with wanting to teach. It becomes pathological if you, your need to teach overwhelms your well-being or has a negative effect on other people in your life. So I'm here on vacation spending a lot of time with family and sometimes I want to disengage from my family to live stream. So uh, doing that for an hour or two, not necessarily bad, but if I'm missing out here on like significant family interactions or say significant opportunities to make money or significant opportunities to be of service for other people or help other people because I have a pathological need to live stream. So if I am live streaming at the expense of my own well-being and at the expense of other people's well-being, then it's pathological. Now, that's not my perception of what I'm doing. Like, I, I believe I'm fitting my live streaming around my life rather than fitting my life around my live streaming. But you can definitely challenge me on that. And so that I, there are times where I'm like, 
here I'm, I'm on, in Australia on vacation seeing my family and there are times that I am purposefully disengaging from family so that I can go live stream for, for an hour or two. Like I've got this you know, overwhelming need right now to share my thoughts on this topic and so I could be perhaps talking to my brother or talking to customers or I could just be you know, concentrating on my job and instead you know I'm feel driven to talk to you uh, so so yeah there are, there are healthy and there are pathological ways to, to be a guru right there are healthy and pathological ways to live stream so if my live streaming is causing people in my family distress then there's a significant chance that what I'm doing is pathological now we're all getting feedback you know, all the time. The world is giving us feedback. So I am not aware of any feedback from my family that my life is causing the distress. Now, when I was blogging in the industry, yeah, I got a lot of feedback from my family that you know, my online activities are causing them great shame and distress. And I just ignored that. But I'm not getting that feedback now. So you could argue, well, that's because they're just sick of it. They've given up. They've kind of given up on you. You're, you know, you're a 56 year old bachelor. You're never going to get it together. They've you know, been so hurt and shamed and embarrassed and uh, that they've you know, just given up on trying to talk to you straight. But that's not my perception of things. But certainly the world is always giving us feedback. If we have any openness to that feedback, right, it's a lot easy, easier to tell if you're heading in an antisocial or pro-social direction. Also, your bank account. Like, if I am earning money legally, you know, in a way that I'm not embarrassed about, then uh, there's you know, a very good chance that I'm I'm engaged in a pro-social direction. So if you're getting isolated by your hobby or avocation or passion, such as live streaming, right, then you're probably headed in a bad direction. And my perception is I'm, I'm not being isolated by by doing this. Right? Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's cost me some friends and, and some forms of connection. But I've also gained a lot of you know, other friends and connections. And I find it stimulating and I, I read things with a lot more care knowing that I'm going to want to defend them or explain them or make the case for them in, in a live stream. So those are, those are some of the incentives. I think I think more clearly because I have to articulate what I'm thinking to you and then hear your challenges and you know, either reformulate my ideas because I, I recognize you're right or respond to your challenges in a way that you know, doesn't forever shame me and knowing that anything that I say and do on this live stream could forever be memorialized in a way that you know, causes me you know, great shame and pain and social embarrassment right? that's a really good incentive to speak and behave in, in a pro-social manner so I think my, my favorite guide for morality is you know, what if what you're doing was captured on, on the front page of the New York Times. And so I, I think I do this live stream with, with that idea in the back of my head that you know, any 10, 20, 30 second segment of what I say on a live stream uh, could be captured and you know, show up in some form of media. And so that, that makes me more, more careful, more judicious, uh, more considerate of the implications, but also I'm a trad in the sense that I think, you know, a man 
man's home is his castle. Like there should be a time and a place where he can just say what he thinks and he doesn't have to allow the possible implications of you know what anyone else sees to completely you know, subjugate his own his own need for self-expression. Okay, time to scroll through the chat. If you take it seriously, it's okay to don't have to pathologize. Notice Luke avoided my question without even researching it. I'm out. I <laughs> Bro, I am at work. I am uh, watering and I am live streaming. You, you, you expected me to research your question while I'm doing all those things and live streaming? Okay, Netanyahu suggested microchipping children. It was covered by the Times of Israel. Google it. Well, maybe I will Google it when I'm done live streaming. You really expect me to water, to work, to take into consideration my surroundings and Google something while I'm live streaming? I can't physically do it on this phone. This is the only phone I have on me right now. Okay, I don't think people like hearing themselves talk. I think people like being admired. So I don't know anyone who likes hearing their own voice. Reputational destruction is equivalent to social death and exile sometimes. No one cares about the U.S. burning people alive in their homes in World War II. Not many people do. People have been propagandized into thinking that slavery and the Holocaust are singular evils committed by Europeans throughout world history. Is Forty taking a huffing break? No, I had to get my watering fixed. Luke just went for an Aboriginal workabout. What do you think about people saying Rupert Murdoch's mum is Jewish? I don't know anything about it. Uh, but I know that there is a need on, on the alt-right to say that everyone you know, in the, in the news media who's important is Jewish. So yeah, people can be correspondingly be victimized by liberal and left-wing ideology. The alt-right died with Spencer's ego is kind of irrelevant compared to more classical thinkers of the right. The CIA fucked up my camera for giving away secret <laughs> installations. What are you concerned about ex-girlfriend? What makes them think that their enlightened ways are superior? Well, we all have a hero system. The conservative... Oh, I didn't hit this. Right? The conservative hero system is more crude. And so that's why liberals are able to fool themselves that they don't have a hero system because we believe in religion, nationality, uh, community, family, extended family, and we have these concentric circles of loyalty. You could always try to see what goes beyond the substrata of their beliefs, like what lies in their unconscious. Better keep that hose handy, increase that happens. What's the building behind you? Anyone who fears the words of Nazis being allowed to be considered has to admit that they think their own views are too brittle or that other people are too dumb to think for themselves. Luke is the Dr. Fauci of interviewing Nazis. Luke used to rock with NPR while performing labor with a landscaping company in LA back in the 1980s. Now he's creating a podcast while performing labor with the Nazi landscaping company. The, the circle of life. Yeah, take a Nazi to a, to a, to a gardening shop. Okay, man, come on, all these people who get pissed off because I can't simultaneously research something while I'm live streaming. Right? When I research something, it, it usually requires my undivided attention for something longer than uh, 10 seconds. What level of vagrancy is Luke undergoing while in Oz? Okay, blessings. Bye-bye.